Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Welcome to Resurrection City. We're always so glad to have you here with us, uh, whether you're worshiping here in person or online, if you're catching up later on your drive home um, from visiting family this week. Uh, we're just glad to, to be worshiping with you. All right, so we are starting a new series in Advent, and I love Advent. It's like my favorite time of the year. Um, So I just want to give another quick plug that we do have our Advent devotional that starts today. So if you still want to get in on that, um, you can do so by signing up online, redstatechurch.org slash events. I know it's not really an event, but it's the easiest way to collect uh, signups and information. So if you're interested in that, I highly recommend that you do that. It's a great way to just, as Joel said, kind of center our hearts and our minds on what really matters uh, in the Christmas season when it feels like there's a million things that compete for our attention. So if you'd like to do that, you can sign up online, and there are candles out in the lobby, too, that you can take home with you if you're interested in that. Okay, so have you ever been watching a TV show or reading a book or listening to a podcast and they make a reference to something that you don't know? And I'm curious, I feel like this has to happen to everybody, but I'm curious, if are you the type of person that when that happens, you pause and look up the reference? Or are you the type of person who just keeps going, thinking, all right, I'll pick it up via context clues or, you know, it'll make sense later as I keep going. So are you the person who stops and looks it up? I want to know who does that. Okay. Who just keeps going and, and yeah, okay, me too. <laughs> I am definitely the person I'm like, I'll just figure it out from context clues and if not, you know, it'll, it'll make sense eventually. Um, but my favorite thing then is then when I go back and rewatch or re-listen or read something and I actually like sometime in the last, since I watched it the first time, I've learned about said thing. And when they make the reference, I'm like, oh my gosh, I get that now. And it, it's just like a fun thing when it all kind of clicks into place. And so we uh, didn't in this Advent series, what we're going to do is kind of take a look at some of the um, places in the Christmas narrative where Matthew quotes from the Old Testament or references um, that something saying like, this is uh, fulfilling the prophecy from this person or whatever, that I often think as we read through the Christmas story, we were like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll pick that up from context clues and I'll keep going. And that's fine, but there's actually a lot of depth and um, and richness that we can get and add to the Christmas story when we look at some of those reference references, understand them in their original context, and think about how they apply to kind of this Christmas narrative of Jesus's birth. So that's what we're going to be doing um, in this series. We're calling it God Keeps His Word because we're going to be looking at the ways that God fulfills his promises um, that he has made in the Old Testament through Christ and through Jesus's birth. And my hope is that by the end of this, when you read the Christmas story again, maybe next year or maybe some other time during the year, you'll be able to say, hey, I get that now. I understand the reference because that's one of my favorite things to be able to do. So I'm going to pray and then we will dive into Matthew. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to live among us. uh, And thank you for the ways that Jesus coming to earth as a human fulfilled so many of your promises. You are truly the author of this story, and by reading it closely, we see the ways that you are and always have been in control, in the past and in the present, and we put our trust fully in you and the ways that you will continue to work through your son, Jesus Christ, in the future. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, so as I said, we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew again this year, um, but I'm not going to make you go through the genealogy again. So if you were here with us last year, we walked through the genealogy. If you're someone who loves looking through that kind of stuff and, and wants to read the whole long list of names, I encourage you to do that uh, on your own time, or you can go back and listen to the uh, message from last year. But we are going to start in Matthew 1, 18 through 23. So it starts, it says, This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So normally, I think when we see this or read this story, we're like, yep, okay, Mary was a virgin sometime a long time ago. One of the prophets like, said that that was going to be the case. Kind of a weird thing to predict, but okay, I get it. We'll move on and kind of keep going through it. But today, I want to look at um, the story that this is actually quoting from. So it's taken from Isaiah 7. And to really understand the reference, uh, we're going to have to understand the story and the context that it's a part of. And this one's a little complicated. So you're going to get story time with Pastor Julie today because we're going to try to walk through some of the history uh, of what's happening in the context of uh, Isaiah 7. So our story starts uh, in sometime in the 700s BC with a king named Ahaz. So I've got my little king guy, he's hanging out. Um, and he was the king of Judah. So at this point in the story, Israel has split into two kingdoms. So Israel's in the north and Judah is in the south. So King Ahaz, he is the king of that southern part that's called Judah. And he was a wicked king. He worshiped a lot of other gods outside of the God of Israel. He made child sacrifices to those gods. He brought in altars of other gods into the temple, which was understandably frowned upon. Uh, so people were not, he wasn't the, the greatest king. We'll just leave it at that. And because of the time period, all the nations kind of around Judah and Israel, it's kind of always changing because people are trying to conquer different nations. People are invading, people are taking over. And it's just sort of this like, I don't know, it's kind of constant chaos. And so at this point in the story, uh, we're going to look at another aspect of kind of what's going on here. So Israel uh, is right next to what in, the, in Isaiah they call Aram, but it's, it's present-day Syria. And Israel and Syria are feeling the tension of Assyria, which is kind of up above them. And they're like, okay, we're feeling the tension. We feel like they're going to invade us soon. We're kind of freaked out about this. So they go to King Ahaz and they're like, hey, why don't you like join together with us? We'll form this alliance and we can then protect ourselves from Assyria and maybe even push back a little bit against that. And King Ahaz is like, nah, I don't think so. I'm not interested. So because of that, 
Israel and Syria are mad, and they're like, we need Judah. We need King Ahaz to get on board with this. So instead of trying to convince them nicely, he, they decide, let's attack Judah to put some pressure on them to make them kind of join our alliance so we can fight off Assyria. It's honestly like, feels like middle school bully, bullying, right? Like it's like the, the drama is a little bit uh, ridiculous at some point. And so while this is happening, Ahaz starts to panic. He's like, oh no, we're going to get invaded by Israel and Syria. They're going to take us over. And he really doesn't like that idea. And so at that point, God sends the prophet Isaiah to go talk to him. And Isaiah tells him, look, it's not going to happen. Israel and Syria are not going to be able to take you over. So just, you know, understand that you are safe. You are not going to be, Israel and Syria are not your threat. You do not need to worry about them. And this is where our verse uh, from, that gets quoted in Matthew comes in. So we're going to look at Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. So it says, The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. And Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds like he's like being good, right? Like he's like, no, I won't put the Lord to the test. That's not actually, I mean, like we said, this guy was a wicked king. He didn't actually care what God had to say. It was sort of more like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to be involved in this. I don't need to put God to the test. I already know. I already know what the answer is. And Isaiah says, uh, here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? So Isaiah is a little annoyed. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. And before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread, so it's talking about uh, Israel and Syria, will be laid waste. So he's saying, I'm going to give you a sign. It's going to be fine. You're not going to be overtaken by them. And even though you're being stubborn and won't ask for a sign like I told you to, I'm going to give you one anyways. And so God is saying, look, you can trust me. I'm going to even give you a sign to show you that. And instead, Ahaz says, meh, I don't know if I really believe that. Uh, I think I'm going to go and ask Assyria if they'll help me out. So he's kind of like, Assyria is bullying Israel and Syria, and then they bully him, and he's like, hmm, I'm going to go see if I can get that other bully to help me out so that I can be safe. Like I said, it's like all the drama. And so he says, I'm going to turn to the enemy. Uh, I'm going to ask Assyria to protect me. I'm going to form an alliance with someone uh, that I really shouldn't be forming an alliance with because I have more trust in them and their ability than I have trust in God and what he can do. And Isaiah says, as a result, the Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So he's saying, if you turn to Assyria for help, it's going to be your ultimate downfall. Uh, it's, and I'll give you a spoiler alert. He's right. Ultimately, Assyria does take them over and they go into exile because of that. So why would Isaiah give a prophecy that wouldn't come true until Jesus, right? That's kind of what we read it. We read it as like, this was this idea of someone being born of a virgin, the son being born. We think that was fulfilled in Jesus. So why would he say, I'm going to give you this sign that doesn't actually happen until way later? And the, the, the thing is that actually it does. So there's this idea within 
understanding scripture that they can talk about double fulfillment of a prophecy. So there's an initial fulfillment, and then there is a second one that kind of fulfills it even more or to the full. And so in that time, in the time of Ahaz, shortly after this prophecy is given, Isaiah actually has a son who uh, is the one who people looked at and said, this is the sign. This is the child who is meant to be our sign that God is someone we can trust and that we're not going to get overtaken by uh, Israel and Syria. And I'm going to give you a quick sidebar. If you're not into this part of it, if you're not like worried about all the specific details, you can kind of just like zone out for a second. But if you're wondering, um, okay, well, was that son born of a virgin? Or like, how does that all make sense? Uh, In that time, the word that they used for virgin often meant a young woman of marrying age. And so they weren't like, oh, had to be someone who, you know, was a, a virgin in the sense we think about it, but it was someone who was of a young woman of marrying age of whom Isaiah had a child with. And so they looked at that child and said, this is the sign, this is the one we were looking for. And some of you might ask, well then, you know, does it matter? Was that Mary was a virgin, is that really true? If the word meant young woman then, doesn't it mean young woman now? And the long story short, I'll try to give you a condensed version, is that that word that Isaiah uses is actually a very strange word for the prophecy. Uh, There were other words that also meant young woman that would have made way more sense for him to use. The word he uses is actually only used like a few other times in the entire Old Testament. It's a very strange word. So even then, people were kind of like, is this, this is the sign, right? Like, are we sure? This also seems a little bit weird. Like, it seems like there might be something more to what Isaiah was talking about. And as you go on um, in Isaiah, there are other things that he talks about and prophesies about, about this child, that seem like, that seems like a little bit too big for the child we're looking at now, right? Like, that seems like a lot to put on this child, and I'm not sure he's going to be able to do that. Um, So people think about these prophecies as talking about like the wonder child is the word that's often used. And they often look at places like Isaiah 9, um, 6, and 7, which um, is the one that you hear often. I think it's the one that's in Charlie Brown Christmas. (laughs) That's the one. That's the reason why I think a lot of people know it. Um, He says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So that sounds like something that you're like looking at this child that Isaiah just had and you're like, are we sure? (laughs) Like, is he really going to be able to do all of that? That seems like a really big thing. So even though they saw the prophecy fulfilled in their own time, and they really did see it that way, uh, many of them still were left wondering, like, is there something greater that's still coming? Was this like a, you know, we got the, the short version, and are we waiting for the longer version, or the, the something more? And so that's sort of how the history of all of that went. Isaiah was given this, had the son who was the sign meant for Ahaz to show he could trust God. He didn't have to worry about the incoming invasion. And yet he chose not to believe any of that. He chose to uh, seek a a nation that he thought was more powerful than God to seek Assyria and say, I'm going to make my alliance with you because I think you have a better chance of protecting me than God. Okay, history, story time, 
coming to an end. That is sort of the context that we are pulling out of Isaiah when we read this uh, section in Matthew. So with all this understanding of how Ahaz was given a word of promise from God and how he chose to trust in something else, what does that make for us? How do we look at the promised Emmanuel in Jesus uh, in light of all of that? And there are three things I want us to draw out uh, from this story this morning. The first is that Jesus as the promised Emmanuel offers us a sign of God's presence. The second is that he offers security. And the third is that he offers salvation. So we're going to look at how Jesus as promised Emmanuel offers us a sign of God's presence, security, and salvation. So first of all, let's look at how he is a sign of God's presence. In Ahaz's story, we are told that the child that's going to be called Emmanuel, or God with us, uh, is a sign to him that God is with him and that he doesn't need to fear this coming invasion. So even when he felt pressure from the world around him, and in this case it was a very real incoming army, God gave him a sign that he was with them. And instead of just giving Ahaz his word and saying, hey, you just need to trust me, I've got this, he actually gave him a real flesh and blood baby, something that he could hold and see and and have in his arms. And this baby represented a promise fulfilled so that Ahaz could see that God is a God who keeps his promises. He's a trustworthy God, a God who gives us ways to see and remember that his presence is among us. And if this is starting to sound familiar, starting to sound a little bit like the Christmas story, then you're picking up on why Matthew quotes from Isaiah here when he's talking about Jesus. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came in the form of a baby to remind God's people that he hadn't forgotten about them. He's still with them. But this time, instead of just giving him a sign or a a child to kind of look at, he actually came himself. God himself came uh, to show the world that he was there with them. He entered into the world as a delicate, fragile baby, and in this second fulfillment of Isaiah's words, or the, the fullest sense of the prophecy, God comes to live with his people to show them that he is with them. So while Ahaz got a sign, we actually got God himself in actual flesh to show us that he's with us. The, the church I grew up in, uh, our pastor often liked to tell these little stories that um, were kind of cheesy, but we're supposed to kind of make a point. They're fictional and sort of just um, there to kind of help you learn a, a lesson, and so, sort of. And there's one of them that has always stuck with me, probably because I have an irrational fear as a kid, at least. I had a rational fear of flooding and other natural disasters. And so this one really got to me. Um, But the story goes that there's a flood. And there's a man who prays to God and says, God, save me from this flood. And he's, you know, kind of climbing up to his roof and trying to get away from the, the rising waters. And some guy on a canoe comes by and is like, hey, I've got an extra spot. Why don't you hop in? I can help get you to safety. And the man on the roof is like, no, 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 I prayed to God. He's going to save me. I, you know, I'm going to wait for him. And then a little while later, a guy in a motorboat comes by and is like, hey, jump in. I'll, I'll help you out. We can, you know, we can get to safety from here. And he's like, no, 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 God's going to save me. I'm going to wait. And then a guy in a helicopter flies by and drops down the ladder and says, climb in, you know, I'll, I'll help you. And he says, no, I, I'm, I'm good. God's going to save me. Uh, I'll just wait. 
And eventually the man dies. It's not a very happy story in that sense. Uh, and when he, he sees God after he dies, he's like, God, I prayed to you. Why didn't you save me? And God's like, well, I sent you a canoe, a boat, and a helicopter. What else did you want from me? And I think as silly as the story is, uh, I think in some ways, I wonder if this is how God feels when we wrestle with the questions of, does God really love me? You know, is God really a God that I can trust? How can I know that he really cares about me or that he's with me? And he's like, I literally came to you in flesh and blood to live among you, right? He's like, I lived a real life. I died a very real earthly, not to mention horrific death for you. I came and gave everything so that I could be with you and to show you that I love you and that I care about you. And if you're like, yeah, that's great, but I didn't live when Jesus was alive. I didn't actually get to experience him living among us and being with him. I couldn't ask him questions or, or talk to him. I understand that. I feel like that's a fair question to ask. And actually, Jesus does give a little bit of a response to that in John 16. In John 16, he's explaining to his disciples that he is going to eventually have to leave. He's going to have to die. Uh, and he says it's actually better for them and for us that he has to leave because when he does, he says, I will send you the advocate or the Holy Spirit to be with you, to Emmanuel with us. So anyone who believes in Jesus now and who follows him can have God dwelling within them. We actually get to experience that through the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, how can that be better than having Jesus as an actual person living among us? Well, Jesus was only one person, right? He could only be in one place at one time with so many people. Whereas the Holy Spirit, we all get to experience that when we place our trust in Jesus and follow him as Savior and Lord. We get the Spirit to be with us constantly. And, and Jesus says that the Spirit will make the truths about Jesus clear to us. He will guide us. He will speak to us from Jesus and from the Father. So Jesus coming to us as Emmanuel, as a little baby in the Christmas narrative, is a sign for us that God is with us right now. His presence is here with each and every one of us through his Holy Spirit. Second, we see that the promised Emmanuel is also a sign of security. So for King Ahaz, the Emmanuel sign was meant to show that the nation of Judah was secure. They didn't have to worry about, being, about the attacks that were coming against them. And through the words of Isaiah, God actually promised that Judah would be secure and the invaders wouldn't win. And verse 7, which I, I didn't read earlier, says, Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Very definitive. And the child coming was just a sign to prove that God does keep his word, that Ahaz could trust him. And because God is faithful, he actually keeps his word even though Ahaz doesn't even believe him. So, Syria and Israel do invade Judah, and they don't prevail. God says, I'm going to keep my word. Even though you didn't follow me, even though you didn't believe me, and you went around me to try and find somebody else to help you out, I still kept my word. So the promise Emmanuel shows us that we are given security in Jesus. No matter what we do, no matter how we respond to it, we are secure in him. And in our case, we aren't promised security from incoming invasions, but we are promised security in our futures. Security in knowing that Jesus will one day come back to make the world completely new. And we're also promised security in the present. Our identity is secure in Christ. No failure or success on our part can change that. 
Just like Ahaz, whether or not we believe that God will keep his promises or whether or not our actions show that we believe that God will keep his promises, God continues to be faithful. It doesn't change how he acts when we uh, disobey him or don't believe him. We securely belong to Christ. We're securely loved by him, and nothing can change that. King Ahaz and the people of Judah face very real pressure, right? Like actual real armies coming at them. But I think that we often feel other types of pressure. Maybe we do have real physical pressures, but we also have some existential pressures or just pressures from our everyday life uh, that can get to us and can make us want to turn away from seeing God as our security and to look in look for other things that might provide what we think will give us security. A lot of us spend our days feeling stress and pressure from work, from family, from society, from everything around us. And we also spend our days hearing messages about what can help save us from those things, right? Whether it's finding your true self, or maybe it's activism, or it's an investment strategy that will help you have all the money and security and wealth, or it's the millions of tips and tricks and things that you can look to to make us feel like we can make our kids behave better or that we can be more productive or anything that we might be looking for. And I'm not saying all of those things are bad, right? They can be helpful, but none of those things are going to give you the true security that we want and that we need in Christ. And it's a great idea to think about like, yeah, I want to put my, my full security in Christ, But I often find it's hard to know, where am I not doing that, right? Where in my life am I struggling or am I putting my security in other places? And the way we see this play out with Ahaz and with other people in scripture and and in people now is that they often start making sacrifices for the things we find security in. So Ahaz started making sacrifices to these other gods and to these other nations. He actually literally sacrificed his own child to a a god. He brought, as I said earlier, he brought in art and things from other temples into the temple that was meant to be just for worshiping Jesus. And so he started to, his, uh, where he was putting his security started to show up in how he acted and how he uh, made sacrifices to the different things he found his security in. Because the things that we idolize uh, and look to for security are always going to ask for sacrifices from us. So what are the things in your life that you're always making sacrifices for? What are the things that demand so much of your attention that you have no time uh, to give towards spending time with God or your church community or reading your Bible? What are the things that you make sacrifices to with your money so that when you're planning your budget, you make sure that this thing is secure before maybe thinking about how you could be generous with your money? What comforts do you give all of your attention to so that you're left with little time to think about how you can love others uh, as you follow Jesus? Because these sacrifices are real, and we make them every day, right? Myself included. Because we put our security in things that are not God, things like work or family or comfort or having the best experience. And ultimate security, ultimate identity and belonging can only truly be found in Christ. And the promised Emmanuel, this Christmas season, shows us that and reminds us of that. Okay, the last thing is that the promised Emmanuel is a sign of salvation, So Ahaz shows us that when you turn to worship things that are other than God, they end up enslaving you. 
So at the end of this prophecy, Isaiah says in verse 17, as I mentioned before, the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So he's saying, if you turn to Assyria to be your security, to be your salvation, it is not going to end well. Telling you this up front, it's not going to go well for you and for the nation of Judah. Eventually, Assyria will not be your salvation. It will actually take you as a slave. And that's exactly what happens. Eventually, Assyria turns on Judah, conquers it, and takes all of the people into exile. So Ahaz thought that something other than God could save him, and it ended up enslaving him. And this happens to us all the time. The things we worship other than God, which we would call sin— which sin is just choosing to worship God instead of choosing to worship some, uh, or choosing to worship something other than God instead of worshiping Him. Don't get that mixed up. Uh, and and these sins, these acts of worship, they often start out small. They start out as things that we feel like, yeah, I did it once, but I still have control over this. I can stop. I can change. And it's not like it's really going to hurt anyone. It's just something. It's not a big deal, right? It's things like oh, that was just a white lie to try and make myself look better because I didn't want them to think poorly of me. Or, sure, I watched porn once, but I was just having a bad day, and I can stop at any time. But when we do nothing about it, or when we excuse it away, sin always ends up coming back to us. It always ends up taking over and enslaving us. And there's a story of this guy uh, who lived in New York and he's sort of like the original Tiger King. <laughs> I have heard this story a long time ago, and I, I went to look it up just to like fact check the details. And there were, as of last year, there were a ton of new articles about it because everyone was searching for Tiger King. And so people were like, hmm, let's tell this story again. And so this guy, the original Tiger King, um, he bought a tiger when it was just a kitten, or I don't know if you call it a kitten, a cub, a tiger... We'll say it, we'll call it a kitten, a tiger kitten. Um, and I think he actually bought the tiger from a zoo in Minnesota. So we've got our own little uh, stake in this Tiger King story. And he takes it back to New York and he tries to keep it in his Harlem apartment. Now, the idea of keeping a tiger in an apartment is comical to begin with, but then in a New York apartment, can you even imagine? Like, that has to be so small with a tiger in there. I lived with a, a Newfoundland, a dog, for a year, and that thing, like 120 pounds, that felt like huge to have in our, in our space. And so I can't even imagine having a tiger in your apartment. And uh, as he, you know, was keeping this tiger, he thought, it's all right, it's a small thing, right? It's a kitten, it's small, it's kind of like a pet, it'll be fine. He thought he had mastery over this tiger. But as the tiger grew, I'm guessing you can understand where this story is going, eventually the guy find out the hard way that he didn't have mastery over the tiger, the tiger had mastery over him. And the reason that this story even like came out uh, is that the authorities were tipped off to it because the guy went into the emergency room with huge claw marks and scratches all over him. And he tried to tell the people in the ER that it was a pit bull, and they were like, huh, yeah, right, this is like crazy claw marks. And so they eventually sent, I don't know if it's animal control or who would respond to that, uh, over to his apartment and found out um, that the tiger was there. And they, they rescued him, and I think he lived a happy life in like Ohio or something. His name was Ming, Tiger of Harlem. Um, so he got to go back to some kind of like 
nature animal preserve place um, and lived out his a happy life. So it was a good ending for him. Not so much for the guy who tried to keep him in his apartment, though. And this is what happens when we try to pass off our sin as like it's a little pet right? It's like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I've got control over it. I'll deal with it later. But it's not. It's a big deal. And as longer, the longer that we wait, the longer that we let it go, the more chance of it taking over and enslaving us uh, happens. Things like, oh, worshiping my family doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? If you're a parent, I love your kids. That's a good thing. It's not that bad if I put my kids above everything else until your kids grow up and they all go off to college and now suddenly you're crushed, right? Not just sad, because you should be sad, but you have like no idea who you are anymore because all of your identity, all of your security, all of your salvation was in raising your kids and now that they're gone, you don't even know who you are. You're, at, you're back at square one. Or maybe it's worshiping your work, starts by working late every now and then or just pushing through because it's a really big project and your boss is really relying on you and you know maybe if you do a really good job he'll consider promoting you over somebody else and you really want that promotion so it's not that big of a deal I'm just going to keep working um, you know for the short term once this project is done it'll all go back to normal and then suddenly the project is done and turns into another and turns into another and you're so stressed out and burnt out that you don't have time for anything And even when you do have the time, you're so tired and exhausted that you don't want to do anything. And suddenly you found yourself in a depression or burnout or whatever it is, and you've become a slave to the thing that you were worshiping. But Jesus comes as Emmanuel, as God with us, and he provides a way out. He offers salvation from all the other things that can enslave us. Worshiping him, following him, uh, although it may sound restrictive at first, is the thing that is actually going to bring us true freedom. You no longer have to be looking to these other things for comfort, for identity, for belonging. You can find all of those things in Christ. And you have God's presence actually with you. You have the Holy Spirit. You have security in him, and you have salvation. You're not enslaved to the things that can eventually turn on you. You've actually been set free. So in looking at the words of the prophet Isaiah and what they meant in their own time, we can see how the Emmanuel offers us these three things. He offers us a sign of God's presence, he offers us security, and he offers salvation. And we see that it's just as true as it was in Ahaz's time, right? Although he had this, um, this first fulfillment or understood it in maybe a small way, we get to see the greater fulfillment in Jesus, Jesus, the promised child who was to be Emmanuel or God with us. Not only is Jesus a sign of God's presence in his time when he lived and to Mary and Joseph and the the people who came to worship him, but he gave us the Holy Spirit. Now we get to experience that. As we head into this Christmas season, this promised Emmanuel is a reminder that we have God with us every single day through his Holy Spirit. And it reminds us that our security in Christ uh, protects us against anything else that may try to invade our worship. And that he ultimately provides a way out for those times when we inevitably are going to choose to worship things other than God. When we find ourselves enslaved to something, when we find ourselves sacrificing our time and our energy and everything to one particular thing that isn't God, he offers us a way out. He gives us salvation through Jesus through this little baby who came into the world tiny and fragile and delicate, 
as a way to come close to us. So as we enter into this Christmas season, we see how God did everything he possibly could to become close to us. He gave up his status as God in heaven to become a human and to live among us and to be close to us. And so I'd ask you to consider this season, how can you move close to him? What are the things that you need to take a step in uh, to see him as a sign of God's presence? Maybe you need to practice thinking about how God is at work in your life, how you can listen to the Holy Spirit, how you can spend time with him in this season. Or maybe there are things that you've noticed, I'm really starting to sacrifice a lot to this thing. I think maybe I'm starting to put my security in this instead of in Christ. And maybe this season is a time to repent of that and to move towards Christ in the way that he moved towards us. And lastly, just to reflect on how he has given us this offer of salvation. If you are feeling enslaved to something, this is the time to see that Jesus came into the world to help set you free from that, to break those chains, and to uh, be close to us. So we're going to head into a time of response uh, through worship and through communion now. And as we do that, I invite you to reflect on what, again, the, the sacrifice that Jesus made in order to be close to us, in order to provide us salvation. He came, and as communion represents, he died on a cross and was raised again, all so that we could experience this. Uh, and so he came, and to be able to do that, he first had to come into the world as a little tiny baby as we experience in Christmas. So in this Advent season, in this time of response through communion and through worship, uh, I invite you to consider those things. How can you move towards Christ in the way that he has moved towards us? Please pray with me, and then we will continue to worship through communion and song. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you were willing to send your son to earth. We know that that was a huge sacrifice, uh, and we know that it's something that you have been planning all along. You always told us that you would, be our, you would be with us, that you would be our security, and that you would be our salvation. And you proved that to us in Jesus Christ. So Lord, I ask that as we head into this season, that we would be willing to, uh, to make our efforts to get close to you. Whatever that takes for us, whether we have to claw through the busyness of life, whether we have to really set aside time to reflect and repent and, and be uncomfortable, uh, Lord, I just pray that you would give us the courage to do that, to face those things so that we can turn to you and that we can experience you uh, in all of your fullness. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.